good evening, everyone. Are you all doing all right tonight? So far, right? Thank you all for coming tonight. And I hope tonight's uh, time of study is a blessing and encouragement to you, and as well as our time of prayer. Uh, Let's go before the Lord and just pray and ask him to bless the time that we have together tonight. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you are the creator of heaven and earth, that everything that is, is here because of your power and your wisdom. Lord, we are humbled by that fact. And we, uh, Lord, just come before you with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you have done for us and the ways that you provide for us each and every day, for the way that you sustain us. And Lord, most of all, we give you praise for Christ Jesus who gave himself for us. And Lord, we're thankful for the study that we've had a chance to go through that reminds us of the the priestly mission, the priestly role of Christ who stood uh, between us and you and and mediated for us and opened the way for us to be called your children and to come into your presence in prayer. And uh, Lord, we just desire tonight to honor you, to learn more of you, and we pray that you'd bless this time uh, to the honoring of your name. And we pray this, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, tonight, we're going to finish, my, I hope, finish the the section that we've been in on the New Testament and on the life of Jesus. And in order to do that, we're going to try to do three chapters. They're they're fairly short. I think we can look at all three of them tonight. But if not, then we'll just uh, pick one up next week. Uh, chapter 27 is focusing on the humility of Christ in his descending from heaven to come and take on the form of humanity to come and live as a humble servant among us and to give himself to others as a servant, ultimately to give himself to death uh, on our behalf and how that fits into his role as our priest, as our great high priest. And so he talks about Jesus descending and really the origin of that is found in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, when Paul says that, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So we're starting with the eternal second person of the triune God, the Son of God in heaven, in all of his glory, and in full equality, full honor, full glory with God the Father. But willingly saying, I'm going to lay aside this honor, this privilege, this position and humble myself and come and live as a servant, all the while not surrendering his deity, not surrendering the fact that he is still the son of God, but coming down to earth, descending and humbling himself really to our level to live among us as a human being. And so verse seven says that he made himself nothing, which is really just the idea of complete humility, of taking himself to a position of lowliness and servitude, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And he says several things are important about the Lord Jesus descending from heaven and coming to live among us. One of those is the idea of imminence. And that essentially just means the nearness, the closeness of God. 
we learn from Isaiah that when the Messiah comes, that one of his names or titles will be Emmanuel, which is God with us. And so when Jesus came to us, he, he brought God near and showed us God right before our very eyes. And so Jesus descending and coming and living among us brings God near. Also, we see in Jesus' humility and living in this world, we see his compassion and his gentleness on display. And one of the ways that we see that really throughout all of the the gospel stories and accounts of Christ is the way that Jesus willingly interacted with what we might consider um, the, the outer edge of society or the outcasts at times of society. And so whereas most people would just ignore people like lepers who were considered unclean and diseased and had to live outside of the villages and towns, Jesus would willingly approach them and say, what can I do for you? And and even reach out his hand and touch someone's hand who was diseased with a skin disease of leprosy and heal them. And so we see Jesus often interacting with people that vast majority of society would kind of push to the edges and say, we don't want you uh, among us. And Jesus went to them, interacted with them and had compassion on them. And he says, uh, he passed by the smug and the arrogant, like the Pharisees, the ones who didn't think they needed help. And he stopped and he spoke to the ones that no one else saw. So Jesus paid attention to the lowly and had compassion on them. Uh, And we also see in Jesus' life on earth that he identified himself with the humble and the ordinary. So you've often heard it said in talking about the incarnation of Jesus coming and living among us that Jesus wasn't born to a princess in a palace. He was born to just a young peasant girl from Nazareth in Galilee, a little town that nobody cared about, and uh, was born not in a palace, but probably in a a manger, in a animal stall behind someone's house or building, and born into poverty, and lived a life of no renown, of not wealth or honor or nobility, And even in his ministry, he says, uh, I don't have even a place to call my own. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man doesn't have a place to lay down his head. And so he identified himself with the humble and the ordinary, which Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So not someone who was well regarded. Uh, you know, you look at our, even our society, and our society I don't, I don't think is much different than any other society in the history of the world, but the people that everyone knows are the wealthy, the intelligent, the talented, the beautiful, uh, the performers, 
that's who people know. And that's, those are the ones that are honored and lifted up in society. And Jesus was none of those. He wasn't wealthy, wasn't someone of nobility, fame. And so he was despised. He lived among the common people. He says his glory was apparent to those whose daily life was full of shame, but it was veiled from those who felt no need for rescue. Like what Jesus said, I didn't come to heal those who are well, but I came to heal those who are sick. And so people like the self-righteous Pharisees who thought they were good and clean and didn't really need help, they just looked right over Jesus and didn't see anything special about him. But for those who were broken and hurting and healed by Jesus through the eyes of faith, they saw him for who he was and the glorious person that he was. And so his mission was to identify with these type of people. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And he says, with all of these things, Jesus not only came near, but he touched them. He touched lepers, the blind, the sick, and even the dead. And he touched children who, though not necessarily unclean, were considered to be of little worth. He says, let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And so people that that weren't well regarded, Jesus took notice of. And so he identified with the lowly. And he says there's really two examples in the New Testament. These are just two. There are many that he probably could have drawn from, but he highlights two examples to show how Jesus identified with lowly people. And one of them is in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. And this is the instance where Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee and a woman comes in, a woman of ill repute, we might say. That, that everyone knew in town, uh, she knew, they knew that she was an immoral woman. She was a sinful woman. And, and she comes in and she humbles herself, casts herself at Jesus' feet and anoints his feet with her own tears and uh, dries them with her hair. And all the Pharisees and the scribes, they're, they're ridiculing the fact that Jesus is allowing this woman to do this. And they say, If he really knew who this woman was, he wouldn't allow her to do this. But Jesus did know who she was and knew that she was someone who was expressing gratitude, thankfulness for the fact that God would take notice of her, a sinner, and that she could be forgiven through the grace of God. And so she was a humble, sinful woman, but one that was full of gratitude. And Jesus welcomed her and took notice of her. And the other example he gives is just a chapter later in Luke where Jesus is on his way to heal someone else. And in the meantime, this uh, sick woman who has suffered with this uh, disease of, of bleeding for 12 years fights her way through the crowd and just touches Jesus' garment. And she is someone that was probably also put aside by society, someone who was considered unclean, someone who had a disease, some, someone that was probably looked at as under God's judging hand because she had this disease that she couldn't get rid of. And she was uh, someone, though, who, ha- who was full of faith and just believing that even if she came near Jesus and touched his garment, that she could be healed. And Jesus stops, doesn't he? 
Jesus could have kept on going, but he stops and he takes notice of this woman and spends time talking with her. And both of those are examples of Jesus identifying and showing his compassion to the lowly. In the chapter, he says, Jesus used the moment, this last particular one, where uh, this woman came to touch his garment to be healed. He says, Jesus used the moment to reveal the deeper meaning of what happened. She had laid hands on God's lamb and transferred her uncleanness to him. And the lamb had given his power and life to her while he went off into the wilderness, bearing the weight of sin, shame, sickness, and everything connected to death. In other words, he says in that instance, there's a a small picture of the day of atonement in which on the day of atonement, they would lay hands on a, a goat, symbolically transferring the guilt, the sin, the unrighteousness of the people to that goat, and they would take it out into the wilderness to symbolically take the sins out away from them as far as the east is from the west. And he says, in this moment, there's this kind of transfer of identity, if you will, of this woman being unclean and, and broken, touches Jesus, and he welcomes, he accepts that, and then grants her his power in life. And it's a, it's a really small picture of the gospel and what Jesus does for us when in faith, we come to him and he takes our sin and he provides us with his righteousness. And then we have Jesus descending further in making himself a servant. And we have this picture of Jesus' servanthood in John chapter 13, a passage that we're very familiar with where they're in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. And after the meal, Jesus picks up a towel. It says he takes off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him, which was normally the task of a servant, right? Um, Someone who is probably the lowest order of the family or a hired servant would do this when a guest would come into the home. But Jesus, the teacher, the master, says, I'm going to wash your feet. And you remember Peter? Peter's like, no, no, you can't do that. This is upside down. I'm not going to let you do that. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, if you're going to draw near to me and I'm going to draw near to you, then the only way for you to draw near to God is for me to serve you, to be your servant. So he says it it turns out that a requirement for being close to him is that you let him serve you. Jesus was both host and servant. As host, he supplied for us the meal of his very body and blood, symbolically in the Lord's Supper. And as servant, he washed the feet of weary travelers. He also washed the day's debris of sin from those who believed. You have no part of drawing near to God if Jesus is not the one who serves you and gives his life for you. And so that's why Jesus says, if you don't let me serve you, then you've got no part with me. Jesus had to serve to give his life as a ransom for many so that Peter might draw near to God. 
And so he continued to make himself a servant and ultimately giving himself to the cross, which Paul says in Philippians 2.8 was really the, the, the depths of his humiliation. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I think that exclamation point is right because there was no more shameful, dishonorable death at that time in the world than to die as a criminal on a Roman cross. That's the point of descending in humility that Jesus went for us. And so he says the story of God is a story of descent. We might have missed that during the tabernacle and temple periods. But looking back, we see that the tabernacle was indeed God descending. And so he brings us back to some of these Old Testament images of God coming near, descending on the mountain, Mount Sinai with Moses. Once the tabernacle is finished, God's glory descending, coming to rest. And so in Jesus descending and coming down to earth as one of us, it is God descending and being with us. So he pursued his people for 40 years in a harsh wilderness, never leaving their side. The movement from heaven to earth was always natural to him. And so this has been God's plan going all the way back to Garden of Eden, right? Of God coming near his people from heaven to earth. And then in chapter 28, he talks about the lamb who was slain for us. And he opens the chapter by just reminding us of what the purpose of the priesthood was and what what it was like, what, what the priesthood really teaches us about the ways of God. And he says that God used priestly representatives who experienced cleansing and closeness on behalf of all the people. This is something that we've talked about in several of the lessons in this book, but the concept that God is holy. God is holy. He is completely set apart, isn't he? He's consecrated. He is unique. He is special. He is righteous, completely clean from sin. And how is it then that we, as human beings, fallen, sinful, dirty, tainted, how can we relate to a holy God? How can we come into his presence? Well, for much of God's program of history and building up to the cross, the means of doing that was through priesthood, through the tabernacle, through someone being designated to be consecrated as holy, to stand in the gap as a mediator between a holy God and sinful people. And so that priestly representative would go and experience cleansing and closeness near to God on behalf of all the people so that when he, like the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies on the day of atonement, he was bringing the people with him, wasn't he? Because he bore their names on his breastplate, on his shoulder pieces. He bore the names of the tribes of Israel. When he went in symbolically, they were all coming near to God, but it was through a representative. God worked through representatives or substitutes who experienced God's wrath against rebellion and contempt. So not only was there a need for a mediator, a representative, there was also the need for someone, something to take our God's 
righteous wrath against our sin. God is just, isn't he? God is fully, completely just. When there is a sin, a breaking, a transgression of the law of God, there is a just punishment for that transgression. God told Adam and Eve from the very beginning, if you disobey me, the punishment is death. Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. So because God is just and righteous, there's always a punishment. But God in his mercy allowed a substitute for the punishment that his people deserved. And through the entire Old Testament system, that punishment was through the blood of an animal. So the blood was shorthand for life. And that lifeblood of that animal was poured out so that God's people might live. When there was a sin committed, someone had to die. Because that's the punishment for sin, for defying a holy, perfect, righteous God. But instead of the sinner dying, God says, I will allow a substitute. And that lamb, that uh, spotless lamb became the substitute for the sinner so that that sinner might live. But the blood of animals was not the final word, was it? We know it wasn't the final word because really it, in, in thinking about creation and the fact that we as human beings are made in the image of God, you can't have an animal really be an equal substitute for a person, can you? It's not an equal substitute. So it was provisional, it was temporary, it was always prophetic looking forward, but the blood of animals was not the final word. An animal could not ultimately stand in for a human being. And the day of atonement was always in view. So all throughout the year, every day of the year when they would offer their sacrifices for their family or bring a burnt offering, it was always kind of provisional for the day of atonement when the high priest would go into the presence of God and make atonement for the people. But then that day of atonement in the grand scheme of things is even provisional for Christ, isn't it? So the day of atonement was always in view, pointing the goal of humanity being close to God, because that's when the priest representing the people would be the closest to God in that holy of holies. And the prophet Isaiah saw that a coming Messiah would be the suffering servant representative of God's people. So it can't ultimately be an animal, but there is one coming who will suffer for God's people and make them have a right standing before God. So Isaiah predicts in Isaiah 53, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So the suffering servant, who is Jesus, would stand in the place of God's people. And he becomes the new Adam then. He becomes a new head of a human race that is redeemed, purchased, made holy by this suffering servant. All creation had been waiting for a new Adam, a new priest, to introduce a new 
creation. And we have had some forerunners along the way who were kind of like a new beginning in the Old Testament, but they were just pointers forward. They were imperfect forerunners, if you will. We have Noah with whom God started over again. And Noah is like a new Adam, kind of a new humanity from Noah. But Noah was imperfect, wasn't he? I mean, the very first episode after the flood, we see Noah imperfect, falling into sin. So Noah wasn't the final answer. We see Abraham, God saying, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to start a a new people with you. You're going to be the father of a people of many, many offspring. And I will bless you and your descendants. Abraham wasn't perfect. He sinned in many ways. He wasn't the final answer. We see Moses. God says to Moses, I'm going to give you a law. You're going to lead my people. But Moses wasn't perfect. We see David, King David, who is the the one after God's own heart, but even he was not perfect. But they all, in their different ways, Noah, Abraham, um, Moses, David, in each of their unique roles and functions, they're all pointing to Christ, who really kind of takes all of them into himself and fulfills them. So like David, he is the perfect king. Like Moses, he's the perfect lawgiver. Like Abraham, he is uh, the father of his people, if you will. He is the, the, the head leader of his people. And Noah, he is uh, the new beginning of a new race of people. He is a new Adam. And so Jesus was the true human being, our suitable representative and the true God who alone could give us life and bring us with him into heaven. And for this to happen, he joined himself to us, became one of us, took everything of ours that was associated with death and gave everything of his that was associated with life and brought our death to its rightful end. That's really the heart of the gospel is Jesus, our representative, our substitute, taking everything that's bad and wrong and cursed about us and taking it upon himself and saying, I accept all of that. I'll bear it. And then saying to us, now I gift you, I grant you just as a gift of love and grace, something you did not earn, could not earn, I grant to you life and righteousness and holiness. That's the heart of the gospel. And so when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate says, here is the man. And he suggests in the book that though Pilate certainly didn't know it, there's somewhat of a prophetic character to that statement. Here is the man, the perfect man, the man that represents all men, all people. He is here standing before you. Of course, Pilate didn't mean it that way, but he spoke better than he knew, didn't he, at that time. He is the man. He is the true humanity. And now all of those who are in him connected to Christ, they too become a part of this new creation, this new humanity. And so all we can do then is agree, believe, that Jesus is indeed the man and God and his death becomes our peace. That's how we're made right with God. And that's how we draw near to God. 
And then chapter 29 finishes really the story of Jesus by bringing us to his ascension and then the gift of the Spirit. And so really Jesus descended, came down, as Paul says, he humbled himself, became a servant, even to the point of dying on a cross. But Paul doesn't end there in Philippians, does he? Because he says, then God exalted him. So his descending, his humbling himself was always for the purpose of then reascending back to glory and honor. And so I don't know if you're going to be able to see this progression. I tried to to lay it out in like a progression where the parallel points match match each other. See if I can show that on this slide. But you have Jesus descending to humility, descending to humanity, descending to servanthood, descending even to the point of dying on a Roman cross, and then the ultimate descent being put in the ground, being put in the grave after his death on the cross. But now each one of those descents is reversed because he ascends out of the grave, doesn't he? Then he ascends to the heavens. And in ascending to the heavens, he ascends as Lord over all powers and authorities. And he ascends to the right hand of deity. So instead of descending to humanity, he ascends to deity. And he ascends to glory. Instead of descending to humility, he ascends back to glory. And this is going to be really small print, but there's kind of the progression and how each one lines up with each other. So Jesus descended, but then in exact opposite way, he ascended back to glory and to his rightful position at the right hand of God. And Jesus knew that this was his mission. Even very early on, John 3:13, he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. He knew where he came from and he knew where he was going back to. Mark 9:31. He was teaching his disciples and he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. But after three days, he will rise. He will ascend. The resurrection declared to the world that Jesus and Jesus alone is the eternal son of God. And Jesus alone has all rights to the heavenly realms and can bring people to God. By Jesus rising from the dead, it essentially put a claim of verified, trustworthy, accurate, proven on everything that Jesus ever said and did. He said, I came to save people. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. I'm going to die. And then third day, I'm going to rise again. And when he rose from the dead, it confirmed all of that. Everything he said, the full mission of the father was done and accepted. And so Romans 1, 4 says, and who through the spirit of holiness, talking about Jesus, was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he is uh, now triumphant over all powers and authorities. But he's not going to be alone in this ascending. He's the first of many to ascend. When he ascended, he was by no means alone. God always intended to have his people near and in Christ, 
they would be brought to him. And so Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but you're coming with me. I'm going to come back and bring you to God. And so in John 20, after his resurrection, he says, uh, I believe this is Mary who comes to the, the tomb. And he says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So immediately upon rising from the dead, he knew ultimately it was his mission to ascend to the Father's throne, to the right hand of God. Acts 1.3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So that Paul can say later in 1 Corinthians, there are thousands of witnesses that saw Jesus alive after he was dead because he was on earth for 40 more days, talked to people, taught people, and then he ascended to heaven. And so many, many people saw Jesus after his resurrection and then he ascended. And so after 40 days, he ascended to prepare a home for his people, not to return until his final coming. He ascended to the throne that was over all the demonic usurpers. Satan and his accomplices always had death as evidence of their power. But now Jesus defeated death, didn't he? This was the beginning of creation, being brought back to its proper head so that nothing could separate us from God. And instead of heaven and earth having a mere point of contact, like maybe at the tabernacle or the temple, heaven would fill the entire earth in Jesus. And that's ultimately when Jesus comes back and a new creation. The whole earth will be full of his glory. So that Paul can say in Ephesians 1, when he raised Christ from the dead, God exerted power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So in his ascension, he is Lord. That's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2, does he? Says he descended in humility, but then God exalted him to the right hand. And now everyone will ultimately bow the knee and call Christ Lord because he is over all authorities and powers. And in his ascending, he then fulfills his promise to send the Holy Spirit. So he ascends so that the Spirit may descend. The final act of his ascension and coronation was the Spirit received from the Father, poured out on us. So 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on his church, just like he promised his disciples. 
So Acts 2, verses 2 and 3, the disciples are gathered there, about 120 of them in the upper room. And it says, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. This is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God coming down as Jesus promised them. He says at the end of the chapter, kings typically receive gifts when they ascend to the throne, but Jesus gave gifts. He gave himself as the gift and he gave the spirit, which binds us to Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? That, that when Jesus ascended to this ultimate position of power and authority, he gave gifts. Paul even says in Ephesians 4, when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. He gave us the spirit. So this Pentecost, this day of Pentecost, when the spirit came, revealed that the heavenly ladder, remember that instance between God and Jacob, that vision of the ladder going up and down? The Pentecost and the the Holy Spirit coming down revealed that the heavenly ladder remained a busy one. After Jesus ascended, the spirit descended and came down on his people. And in his descent, he gives power to his people, groans on our behalf before the throne of God and brings us into Jesus so that we abide in him. The spirit has raised us with Jesus. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So Christ gave us the spirit as a gift and that Holy Spirit will one day cause us to rise from the grave. As a result, he says, it is now official. We are no longer citizens of earth, nor do we have dual citizenship. Instead, we are strangers and aliens on earth and we are full citizens of heaven as we wait with Christ for the day when he will bring heaven to earth. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Now in Christ, the mission has been fulfilled. Jesus descended, humbled himself, came as the Lamb of God, slain for us, became our substitute, and then rose from the dead and now ascended to the right hand of God where he is over now all powers and authorities. And he granted us his spirit as a down payment, Paul says, guaranteeing the final inheritance of the last day. When you, do, when you give a down payment, like maybe on a car or a house, that's like a promise, isn't it? It's like a promise. I'm going to pay you this much, but it's in promise of paying the rest, of fulfilling that obligation. Can you think of a greater down payment than one of the members of the triune God? So that really brings into focus then when Paul says in Romans 8, how will then he not along with Christ graciously give us all things? The down payment is the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the inheritance that's coming if the down payment is the Holy Spirit? Glory that we cannot even imagine is on the horizon for God's people. That's why Paul says, I can't even begin to compare the sufferings, the difficulties of this present life with the glory that will be hereafter. 
as hard, as difficult, as frustrating as this life can be, take that intensity, multiply it by whatever number you want to beyond our imagination or comprehension, and then turn that into good. And that's how glorious it's going to be. Paul says, I can't even compare it. It's not even in the same realm. And so we are now full citizens of heaven, waiting for the day when Christ will come. All of that God did for us in Christ. So that, as the theme of the whole book is, ultimately we might be near God. There are times when we don't feel near God. There are times when it doesn't feel like God is very close. But if you are a Christian, God is closer than he can possibly be. He could, I'll put it this way, he could be no closer. Because you have the Holy Spirit of God, where? In you. You can't get closer than that. He's not just with you, beside you. He is dwelling within you. God is near. And one day, that deposit, that earnest money is going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back and we are able to live in the visible uh, glory of God for all of eternity. That's That's something to look forward to, isn't it? So as Paul says, don't set your eyes on things below, set your eyes on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so I pray that this is encouraging and helpful to you in whatever you're going through right now in your life and helping you to grow in your faith and in looking forward to the hope that we all have as believers in Christ. Let's bow together and pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we've had just to to reflect on Christ coming for us and humbling himself, him giving himself to the death of the cross for us, and then ultimately rising from the grave for us. Father, thank you for this study that we've had the opportunity to go through. And in the last few lessons that we have, uh, may it continue to remind us of your purpose, your desire to draw near to us as your people and for us to draw near to you. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in us by faith in Christ. And Father, we long for the day when the Lord Jesus returns in triumphant glory. Lord, may he come and may he come soon. Lord, strengthen our faith in the meantime and help us to walk in worship and praise and faith in all that you have done for us. Lord, bless the remainder of our time of prayer. And we pray this, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen.